one of the great Christian classic works of literature is The Pilgrim's Progress, an allegory by John Bunyan about a man named Christian who leaves his old life behind and begins a journey that ends in the celestial city. It's a picture of the spiritual journey of each believer in Christ from the moment of our salvation until we reach heaven, and it depicts the many challenges, victories, difficulties, and joys that we encounter in the Christian life. The story of the children of Israel in the books of Moses gives us a similar picture, albeit a true historical one. The Israelites' journey from enslavement in Egypt to the promised land of Canaan is a picture of Christian pilgrimage. Our journey, our spiritual journey, begins as theirs did, with redemption. Then we find ourselves traveling toward the promised land, that is, the fullness of life God offers us in Christ, in this life, and ultimately the reward of heaven. Our pilgrimage is the process the Bible calls sanctification, in which we become increasingly Christ-like. With each step of maturity in Christ, we inherit another piece of the land of promise, the riches of life in Christ. Now, what we inherit in this life are not material riches, but spiritual riches. Nevertheless, these spiritual riches lead to an exceedingly satisfying life. The journey is often difficult, but we should find ourselves making progress as we come to know our God and His good ways better and embrace them. As we discover in this week's lesson in the book of Numbers, the first generation of Israelites out of Egypt rejected the promised land and never inherited it. A real tragedy. Perhaps you know some people who claim to belong to Christ, but never seem to have much of his life within them. They lack the identifying marks of a person who lives near the riches of the promised land. In fact, one would hardly guess they've entered into a life of peace, a life of rest from self-dependence, because they persist in patterns of complaining and fear. They exhibit little of God's wisdom. Only on a rare occasion will they speak of victory over sin because, frankly, they live as though they're defeated. The Christian life is indeed a pilgrimage with tremendous spiritual blessings to be inherited along the journey and at our journey's end. Sadly, too many people who call themselves Christians experience little of the promised land God offers. In this lesson, we'll discover what the biblical text tells us about why this happens. The Hebrew name for the book of Numbers is In the Wilderness. Numbers is a title that was given later by its Greek translators because of the censuses it records. And although several are recorded, especially in the first chapters, there are two censuses that stand out because they reflect the major incident in the book. The first of these two censuses was a count of the fighting men aged 20 or older from the generation of Israelite adults that left Egypt. 
the second we find in chapter 26. And that was a census taken again of the fighting men, age 20 and older. But from the succeeding generation, nearly 40 years after the first census. In the book of Exodus, we learned that Israel spent approximately three months getting from Egypt to Sinai. While at Sinai, the people had entered into a covenant relationship with God, received his law, government, format for worship, and God's presence in their midst within the tabernacle. At Sinai, the large people group of the Hebrews was forged into the nation of Israel. But they were still a nation without a land of their own. The story in Numbers begins on the first day of the second month of the second year after Israel left Egypt. Israel had been camped at Sinai for over 11 months. And we see in the first 10 chapters of Numbers that movement of the camp was imminent. Now, because the Israelites were sure to face war, the counting men were, uh, the fighting men were counted. Also, responsibilities were assigned. The manner in which they were to break and reset camp was described. And they were told when to break camp and when to stop traveling. The total number of fighting men is found in verse 46 of chapter 1, 603,550. Conservatively speaking, that would give Israel a total population with women and children of well over 2 million, some estimate as high as 6 million. Now, this number, to be quite honest, has caused no small amount of controversy among Bible scholars. Although some scholars insist that the numbers, as they're translated in our Bibles, are accurate, even among very conservative scholars, a good many think these figures are very unlikely and may have been mistranslated. They point out that prior to modern methods of agriculture, the land wouldn't have been able to support more than a million people. And at this time in history, the entire Egyptian army wasn't likely to have totaled more than 20,000 members, making it hard to explain why Israel wouldn't have easily overthrown their Egyptian oppressors. Furthermore, it's been calculated that a narrow path through the Red Sea would have necessitated a line of Israelites 800 miles long needing to cross in one night. Even if the path had been as great as three miles wide, the Israelites would have needed to walk 5,000 abreast in order to cross in one night. Well, several solutions have been suggested. The best of which seems to be that the Hebrew terms thousand and hundred may have originally referred to units, such as clans or families or military groups. If this were true, then the actual number of fighting men recorded in Numbers 1 could be closer to 5,000, with the total population being somewhere near 20 to 40,000. But friends, friends, what's most critical to affirm is that in its original documents, God's word is without error. However, 
our human translation and understanding sometimes are not without error. Whatever the actual number, Abraham's descendants had surely become numerous, just as God promised. According to Numbers 2, the Lord gave Moses instructions for arranging the camps of Israel for encampment and also for marching, that's for setting out. Of course, having a predetermined process would, for these things would have made travel much more efficient. But even more importantly, their orderliness depicted that an orderly God encamped among them. The Israelites, as you remember, were to represent him to the nations in every way. Numbers 3 gives the results of a second census, all Levites one month or older. And the primary purpose of this census, this second census, was taxation. At the time of the exodus from Egypt, the firstborn sons of Israel were spared while the Lord put the death to death the firstborns of Egypt. And as a result, the Lord said that all firstborn males of Israel belonged to him. Now, firstborn animals were to be sacrificed, but firstborn sons were to be redeemed with a tax. So in this case, the Lord said he would take the Levites into his service in place of the tax. So Moses took a census of the Levite males one month or older, followed by another census of all the firstborn males of Israel one month or older, and the number of the Israelite firstborns exceeded the number of Levites by a mere 273 individuals, and for these the tax was paid. Now, Levi had fathered three sons, each of which became a clan of Levites. Aaron was a descendant of Levi from the clan of the Kohathites, but only he and his sons had the privilege of serving as Israel's priests. God set apart the other Kohathites and all the Gershonites and Merarites, the other two clans, men from the other two clans, to assist Aaron and his sons in their work and to take responsibility for guarding and transporting the tabernacle. Numbers 4 tells us of a third census for the purpose of giving the Levites their work assignments. The Levite men from 30 to 50 years of age were eligible for tabernacle work and were counted. Special tabernacle assignments were given to each Levitical clan. So the instructions in Numbers 1 through 4 made for a very orderly camp and travel process. Following these chapters, we find two chapters of law inserted. The laws in Numbers 5 seem to represent case studies for dealing with disorder brought about by sin in the camp. On the other hand, chapter 6 discusses the Nazarite vow, which represented the ideal within the camp. Those who took this vow were to a reminder to their fellow Israelites of the priority of pursuing holiness. If the camp remained pure of defilement, that is, sin, as chapter 5 discusses, and the Israelites made it their daily goal to lead holy lives, as chapter 6 encourages, they would indeed represent the Lord well to the nations. 
Numbers 7 and 8 describe the consecration of the tabernacle and the Levites. Chapter 12 may be retrospectively describing the offerings given by the tribes at the time the tabernacle was set up, about a month earlier. Numbers 8 tells of the consecration of the Levites to assist the priests in their work at the tabernacle. And then we move to Numbers 9, which records the celebrating of the Passover by the Israelites just one year after their departure from Egypt. Beginning in verse 15 of chapter 9 and then carrying through the first 10 verses of chapter 10, we read of some final preparations. One was knowing that the cloud lifting from the tabernacle was the signal that the Israelites were to break camp and set out. Whenever the cloud settled over the tabernacle, they were to stop and set up camp again. And then trumpets were hammered out of silver for the purpose of announcing the setting out of camp, as well as calling the people to an assembly. And with these final words in verse 10, I am the Lord your God. Verse 10 concludes the history of Israel's encampment at Mount Sinai. Now, in the books of Exodus and Leviticus, as I've pointed out, we learned that Sinai was the place where God forged the children of Israel into a nation. He'd given them his laws and his promises. And then in Numbers 1 through 10, God gave them further structure, ordering the way in which they traveled and the way in which they set up their camp. In a variety of ways, all these ways, he was preparing them to inherit the promised land. The ordering of Israel's camp for travel was yet another of his blessings. The Israelites had been learning to know the God of their forefathers ever since the time they left Egypt. And the ordering of their camp taught him that he is a God of beauty and order. As they traveled from Sinai to Canaan, they portrayed this truth to the nations. Where God is present, there is order. So here's a principle for you and for me. We cannot experience the fullness of life God offers us without practicing the disciplines of peaceful and well-ordered living. Now, I know there are some of us who just relish the idea of orderliness. It's usually a matter of personal temperament. However, the principle taught here isn't that we should live with an obsessive need to attempt to control everything around us. If we're compulsive about trying to bring order into our lives, we can't rest in the Lord. On the other hand, we also can't live the blessed lives God offers us and allow chaos to reign in our lives. Self-discipline is required on the part of those who are too aggressive in trying to order their lives and for those who we could say prefer to live and let live without any semblance of order at all. The former need to discipline their compulsions and the latter need to discipline their free spirits. What does this look like, you might ask? Well, the well-ordered Christian life is one in which our homes, however meager, 
reflect a certain degree of organization and cleanliness. We should practice personal hygiene, attempting to keep our bodies as healthy as possible, even while we're pouring out our lives for the sake of Christ. Living orderly lives involves discipline in our spending, so that we plan to give of our resources to God first and then to meet family needs. We prioritize time to allow for Bible study, for prayer, and time with those in our Christian community. We do our best to keep the things we own from falling into disrepair. We return borrowed items in a timely manner and a good condition. We obey laws and honor figures of authority. We consider our commitments and keep them. And I, I really think you're getting the idea at this point. A well-ordered, godly life is a life of peace. It's not characterized by frantic last-minute attempts to fix what we failed to plan for. But neither is it characterized by frantic attempts to control what we should be relinquishing to God. Do you have a reputation for living a peaceful and well-ordered life? If not, what step will you take this week to move in that direction? Well, let's move on in our discussion here. God gave the Israelites all they needed to enter the promised land, and once he ordered their camp for travel, it was time for them to leave Sinai at last. Nearly one year after they'd arrived at Sinai, the cloud finally moved. A spirit of hope and enthusiasm marked their departure. However, according to the very next chapter, Numbers 11, this spirit of enthusiasm didn't last long. Complaints, dissatisfaction, and dissension eventually culminated in outright rebellion against God. The first complaint was over the general hardships of the journey. In response, God sent fire that consumed some of the outskirts of the camp. After the more general complaints, more specific ones occurred. The trouble began with the craving, cravings of the rabble, that is generally assumed to be that mixed multitude of people, of non-Israelite people, who'd left Egypt with, with Israel. A complaining spirit, as you know, is quite contagious. So unsurprisingly, the Israelites also began to complain, recalling the delights of the food they'd once enjoyed in Egypt. Their primary complaint centered on the bland diet of manna and the absence of meat. Moses poured out his challenge before the Lord, and the Lord answered in two ways. First, he put some of his power upon 70 elders to assist Moses in spiritual leadership. Moses needed that encouragement. Secondly, the Lord provided more meat in the form of quail than the Israelites could possibly eat. However, the Lord was angry with the Israelites for their complaints, and so he sent a plague. A third complaint emerged, lodged against Moses, believe it or not, by his own family. Now, we're told that Moses married a Cushite. It's not really clear whether this was Zipporah. We know she was a Midianite 
who possibly could have also been considered a Cushite. Or maybe Zipporah had died and the Cushite woman was Moses' new wife. Regardless, Aaron and Miriam used Moses' marriage as an excuse to complain about his leadership. They resented and complained against his exclusivity as Israel's leader. The Hebrew verb tense used at the opening of this section implicates Miriam as the instigator. And this is confirmed by the fact that she was the one whom the Lord judged with leprosy. Moses interceded for Miriam and she was healed, but not without enduring seven days of confinement outside the camp. A truly humbling experience for Miriam. As it turned out, the Israelites' grumblings were but a portent of the sad condition of their faith, one that's fully revealed in Numbers 13 and 14. When the Israelites arrived at Kadesh, Kadesh Barnea, in the desert of Paran, they'd reached Canaan's southern border. And there the Lord told Moses to send one leader from each of the 12 tribes on a 40-day reconnaissance mission in order to become familiar with Canaan and its people. The spies returned with two different reports. The first stated, the land flowed with milk and honey, a phrase indicating that it was a rich land, but the presence of the Anakites rendered taking over the land impossible. However, two of the 12 spies, Caleb and Joshua, gave a different report, insisting that the land was good and that the Lord would do as he'd promised and give it to them. The only but in their report was the possibility of the people rebelling against the Lord by rejecting the land out of fear. The Israelites were terrified by the report of the ten. They wept and grumbled, stating they would have preferred to die in Egypt or even die in the wilderness rather than fall by the sword of the Canaanites. They decided to choose a leader to take them back to Egypt. They made their decision on the basis of fear rather than on the basis of faith in God's promises. Hebrews 3, 16 through 19 says their sin was one of unbelief. And so the whole assembly of Israelites rejected the Lord's gift and even talked about stoning his faithful leaders. The Lord told Moses he'd strike them down and make Moses into a greater and stronger nation. That threat was just God's cue to Moses to start interceding for Israel. And that's what Moses did, appealing to God's glory and his character. This challenges me. I wonder, do we appeal to God on the basis of his character and his glory when we ask him to meet our needs or when we're interceding for someone else? Well, in response to Moses' prayer, the Lord forgave Israel. He didn't treat them as they deserved and put them to death immediately. However, there were consequences for their sin. Not one of the adult Israelites, those 20 years and older, who saw the plagues on Egypt, who witnessed and experienced the Lord's 
mighty and miraculous deliverance, who were old enough to be accountable for failing to act on what they'd experienced, would live to enter Canaan. In fact, what would happen to them would be just as they said they would have preferred. They'd die in the wilderness. The Lord said they'd wander one year for each of the 40 days that Canaan had been explored until that entire generation of Israelites was dead. The 10 men who'd spread the bad report, now they were struck down by a plague. Apparently that happened immediately. Meanwhile, Caleb and Joshua's faith was honored. God not only spared them from the plague the other 10 spies suffered, but also promised that they would be the only adults to enter Canaan. Although the rest of the adult Israelites wouldn't enter Canaan, that didn't mean God wouldn't keep his promise to give Israel the land. God said the children of the Israelites who'd refused to enter the land, they would inherit Canaan in their parents' place. It was the only hope he offered them. As an encouragement that God would keep his promise to the next generation of Israelites, chapter 15 records supplementary instructions from the Lord about their sacrifices that were to be applied, in the words of verse 2, after they entered the land he was giving them as a home. Then they were told that sacrifices could be offered for sins committed unintentionally. But as verses 30 and 31 state, anyone who sins defiantly must be cut off from the people of Israel. Their guilt remains on them. And so we see that the 10 spies, as well as the man recorded at the end of chapter 15 as being stoned for abusing the Sabbath, these individuals were examples of sinning defiantly. Numbers 16 through 18 presents yet another cycle of rebellion and the Lord's response. Now, we're not told exactly when during the 40 years of Israel's wandering that these certain men challenged Moses' and Aaron's leadership. The Lord defended Moses' authority by fulfilling Moses' prophecy that the rebel leaders wouldn't die a natural death. The earth swallowed them. He defended Aaron's authority by sending fire out of the sanctuary, out of the tabernacle, that consumed 250 other rebellious leaders who, presumably, who presumptuously acted as priests. Furthermore, the Lord caused Aaron's staff to be the only staff among those of the 12 tribal leaders of Israel to bud, blossom, and produce almonds. From that time forward, Aaron's staff was to be kept within the Ark of the Covenant as a reminder that he and his descendants were God's appointed priests, not just anyone like the 250 who wanted to take that honor for themselves. So we see that God gave the Israelites everything they needed to enter the Promised Land. Yet they had the choice to enter the land or to reject it. At the beginning of this discussion, I said that we discover from the Bible reasons why too few professing Christians discover the abundant life of spiritual wealth 
that the Lord promises us. According to the New Testament, the Israelites' failure serves as a warning of two serious possibilities. The first possibility is that an individual may come to understand the gospel, the good news of redemption, and seem to embrace it without really being saved because no true change of heart occurs. These may be people who like the idea of going to heaven, but secretly don't want anything to do with repenting and allowing Jesus to actually change their lives. They may even be, faith, even be faithful church attenders. The book of Hebrews gives serious warnings to such individuals who think they are saved, but really are not. It tells us to be careful that we don't make the mistake of thinking we've entered the place of rest when we never actually have. So one reason, then, why some professing Christians never experience fullness of the fullness of life is that they have never really been converted. The second possibility that we're warned about in the New Testament is the possibility that we may be genuinely saved but continue to live in a defeated way as though we've received no power to be transformed. These are people who remain immature in their spiritual lives, even after being Christians for a long time. 1 Corinthians 10, 1 through 13 warns us to be careful that we don't fall into this kind of sin. Yes, it's a sin, a failure to grow spiritually and inherit all God offers us in Christ. The second reason professing Christians never experience abundant life in Christ, then, is spiritual immaturity. Of course, all new converts are immature, but if we don't feed ourselves with the spiritual meat of God's Word, and exercise faith in applying it, we'll live our lives under the hand of our Father's discipline instead of claiming all he planned to give us. 2 Peter 1.3 says that God has given his children everything we need for godly living, all we need in order to possess the spiritually rich and fruitful life he offers us. All we have to do to possess the promised land of an abundant Christian life is simply to trust and obey him, to yield to him. But you know, we can make even more specific application to our lives by considering what we learned in Numbers about how Israel went wrong. First, the Israelites insisted on living in the past. They just continually tried to glorify their experience in Egypt, although in reality, they'd been slaves there. When God's people live in the past, they experience a degenerating Christian life rather than a spiritually fruitful one. And that's a warning some of us need to heed. Living in the past is very unhealthy. For the Christian. The Israelites not only longed for the past, though they lived their present lives under the shadow of fear. Their second failure 
was a failure to live by faith. Acting in faith really comes down to believing God. Think about it. All 12 spies saw the same things in Canaan. The majority chose to believe in the forces of the things they could see with their physical eyes, such as the giants in the land. But Joshua and Caleb chose to view the land with spiritual eyes. God was far more powerful than the Canaanites and the Anakites. He said the land was good and promised to give it to them. They chose to fully believe him. And you know, it's only ever a minority of people who do. If we want to be counted among them and inherit all God has for us, we must exercise faith in our daily experience. You see, we cannot inherit the promised land of fullness in Christ without regularly exercising faith. Exercising faith is actually the means of strengthening faith. All Christians experience fear. Fear in itself isn't sin. It's just temptation. However, once we allow fear to prevail and we refuse to step out in faith, then we have sinned and rebelled against God. If we allow fear to dominate us, you and I will never experience all that God offers us. Fear is a strategy that Satan has successfully used to keep Christians from becoming all God wants them to be, from doing all God wants them to do, and experiencing all God wants to give us. The Christian life is a pilgrimage with tremendous spiritual blessings to be inherited along the journey and at our journey end, journey's end. Perhaps you've never considered that unwillingness to possess all God offers you is actually rebellion against him. It is indeed, because it's our refusal to obey him and to believe him. Once we've been redeemed, all the spiritual riches of Christ are ours for the taking.